Thank you. Well, it seems fitting that on St. Patrick's Day, we would talk about going to witness to our friends and neighbors. Do you know the story of St. Patrick? He lived 1,500 years ago. And as a young man, perhaps eight years of age, he was kidnapped and was sold as a slave to a Celtic chieftain who took him across the Irish Sea from England, where he lived, across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And he was there as a slave to this family for a number of years. As a teenager, he was able to escape and went back home to England. And it was there that he came to faith in Christ. But God burdened his heart for the pagans in Ireland. And so he returned to the Celts of Ireland and began to preach the gospel of Christ to them, ultimately seeing thousands and thousands of them profess faith in the Lord and be baptized, and churches were established. And so on this day that we remember St. Patrick, and we celebrate, those of us of Irish ancestry celebrate that, we celebrate a man who gave us an example, and I hope that all of us will follow that example as we anticipate the crusade this summer. Be a part of Operation Andrew. God will bless you for it. And now let's open our Bibles together, please, to Colossians chapter 3. We Christians are not only to know the truth in our minds, we are also to show the truth in our lives. There were false teachers who had come to the church in Colossae and confused the saints, making them think that they needed more than Christ to have a complete knowledge of God. And so the Apostle spends the first half of this letter correcting that misunderstanding. And in the first four verses of this chapter, he crunches some of the details of what the Colossians said they believed. He says, since you have been raised with Jesus Christ, having died with him, now having been raised with him, Seek the things above. And so he reminds all of us that salvation is all about coming into a personal relationship with Christ. And dying with him, being buried with him, being raised again with him in newness of life. He is the source of our life. We believe that. And he says that our life is now hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Hidden with Christ, rather, in God. i got it turned around. And so that's the security of our lives. That we are hidden with Christ in God. We believe that. And he says, whenever Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we will appear with him in glory. That's the destiny of our lives. And we believe that. But it's not enough to just believe it. We need to show that in our lives. And so he says, since this is true, since this is what you believe, seek the things above. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. You see, what we believe ought to affect how we behave. And so now the Apostle is going to take the rest of the book, basically, to talk about 
what behavior ought to look like when people believe what they say they believe about Christ. A believer is to set his heart on things in heaven. And when he does, that will change the way that he treats others on earth. I'm going to read the text beginning in verse 5, and as I do that, I want you to notice that this list of sins that the Apostle says that we are not to have in our lives are sins of relationship. They have to do with how we treat other people. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Now, as you look at this text, there are two decisive commands or word pictures that the Apostle gives to us. This morning, I want to talk about what a heavenly life looks like in street clothes. He says we are to set our affection on things above. But what does that look like in a mirror? What does that look like in everyday life when you set your affection on things above? Well, Paul is going to write quite a bit about that. We're going to begin this morning by seeing two decisive commands that are involved in that kind of a life. The first one is put to death. That's the first command. I don't know if you mark your Bible. I encourage people to do that as a way of kind of jotting things down and when you underline it or you take a note in the margin it helps jog the memory the first decisive command is put to death the members of your earthly body the second one is put aside in verse 8 put aside the lifestyle that was out of your past When the Apostle says we are to put to death the members of our earthly body, he is not saying that we're to put to death our hands and our feet and our tongues. He is not saying that we're to put to death the physical members of our body. This is picture language. It's an analogy. For example, when it says that you as a believer are a member of Christ's body, It doesn't literally mean that you are a toe or an index finger. What it means is that like the members of your body, 
express your life. So you as a Christian express Jesus in the world. You are an extension of his life inside of you. You're a member. And so when he says here that we're to put to death the members of our bodies that are upon the earth, he is saying that we are to put to death those expressions, those impulses that come out of our bodies that are related to sin. We're to put them to death. That is, we are to deprive them of power. We're not to allow them to be brought to life. We're not to allow those sinful impulses that arise out of our present state to be realized. We're to kill them. We're to put them to death. In Romans 8, and I think it's verse 13, he says that we are to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. It's the very same thought. It's those actions, it's those words, those attitudes that arise out of our current state in which we still have sin working inside of us. Put to death, he says, these expressions of evil desires operating in your body. Not only that, he says, put aside the lifestyle connected with your past. That is, cast them off, just like you would take off dirty clothing at the end of a day. You know, when you've worked hard and you're gritty and you're, you're soiled and you're sweaty... And you can hardly wait to get the clothes off and get into the shower and get refreshed. He says, strip off of you, take off of you, put off from you those things connected with your former lifestyle. Now, why are we to do this? Well, he explains in verse 6 that it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Literally, he says, the wrath of God is coming. We don't hear much about the wrath of God these days. God's wrath is not God having a temper tantrum. God's wrath is the natural expression of his holiness when sin presents itself. God's wrath is just as natural as lightning is when the charges are set up during a storm and lightning flashes and then there's thunder. That's the way God's wrath is. God is holy. And when sin comes into his presence, when he's aware of sin, wrath goes forward because of who he is. So it's not God's stamping and having a tantrum of some sort. It's just the expression of God's holiness against sin. Now he says that you and I are to put to death. We're to take off of ourselves like dirty clothes. Those behaviors, those actions, those attitudes 
that God's wrath is coming on. And notice he says that God's wrath is coming. It's not that it someday is going to come in the distant, we don't know when, but he's saying God's wrath comes on it. The idea in this verb is that God's wrath is already approaching. God's wrath has already been declared. God has given the sentence upon this sin, even though the sentence may not yet be carried out. It's like a prisoner who is declared guilty of murder. And the sentence is given, you must pay by the, your life. You must be executed. And years go by. The judgment is already given. The sentence is there, but it's not been carried out yet. And my friend, that's the way it is with God's wrath. In John 3 and verse 36, it says, The one who does not believe on the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. It means that God's wrath has already been declared. The sentence has already been given against that person, even though it will not be carried out until he's his death or Christ returns. As Jesus told it, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he told about the rich man who lived sumptuously all of his life with no thought of God. And during that whole life, God's wrath was on him. He did not know it even. But God's wrath was hanging over him, around him. And then when he died, he was immediately aware of being in flame and in torment in hell. And the wrath was carried out. If you're outside of Jesus Christ today, I warn you that the wrath of God is coming. And it's because of that terrifying fact that the Apostle says that we believers ought to put to death those things of our lives that are of this earth. The earthly things connected with the sinful impulses in our bodies. We're to take them off like dirty clothes and pile them up and be done with them. Because God's wrath is coming. I think you can see from this that men invite the wrath of God. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But when we sin... We invite the wrath of God to come against us. And it is, and it will be carried out unless we find refuge in the cross where God's wrath has already fallen and there alone there is safety for the sinner who will come to that cross and bow and repent and believe on the Savior who died and absorbed that wrath for him. But what is it specifically that's to be removed from the believer's lifestyle? By the way, let me say something, because there's confusion about this in our culture today. There is the suggestion in our culture that all lifestyles are equally valid. That's just a matter of what option you have or what choice you make as to what lifestyle you want to follow. And whatever it is, have a wonderful life. 
That is not biblical. That is not biblical. He is going to tell us here that there is a lifestyle that brings judgment from God. And that's what we're to be done with. We're to get rid of that lifestyle as Christians. First of all, it involves immorality. Notice verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. The word here is porneia. And if you listen to that Greek word, you will hear the beginning of our English word pornography. The word porneia came from two verbs, both of them connected with prostitution, male and female prostitution. Those two verbs came together and formed this noun, porneia. Porneia refers in the New Testament to any kind of a sexual relationship that is apart from God's order of a husband and wife in marriage. He is saying that the expression of sinful desire, sinful sexual behavior rather outside of that which is God's order is porneia. It's immorality. God condemns it. We are to put to death immorality and impurity. The word impurity refers to any lewdness or unnatural pollution, whether it's acted out by oneself or with others. Bob Gromacki, who is an acknowledged uh, Greek scholar, says, Uncleanness is moral impurity in all its forms. It is marked by a filthy mind, full of sensually suggestive thoughts and humor. It reads illicit sex even into the most wholesome situations. Marked by perverted fantasies, it is expressed today through pornographic literature and movies. Impurity lewdness. It is a word that is used specifically in Romans 1.24 as descriptive of homosexual behavior, but it's not just limited to that. It's impurity of any form of immorality. We are to be done with impurity and passion. This word refers to erotic love, the drives or lusts that dishonor those who indulge them. The word passion is used in Romans 1.26 of homosexual behavior. It is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.5 of heterosexual behavior. It is erotic love that sees the only end in this as fulfilling one's own lusts. And it brings dishonor to those involved. We are to put to death passion, as well as evil desires. Here the word refers to those physical drives and desires that come from the body. God gives us some of these. And when God gives them, he intends them to be good and for blessing. But sin within us seeks to twist those drives for evil to pervert them for wickedness. And that's what he's talking about here. 
It's when the drives that we have that are good drives, the appetites that we have that God gives us, are twisted by sin. He says, put to death those things. And not only that, but greed. The word greed comes from a verb that means to have more. One does not have to be poor to be greedy. It has nothing to do with how much one has or how little one has. It's that drive to say, I want more. It is a craving for what one does not have as well as a craving for more of what one does have. It is an insatiable selfishness. And the Apostle says here, it is equivalent of idolatry. Idolatry is the placing of something before God. An idol is anything below from which we seek satisfaction. It may be something that by itself is even allowable. But we focus on it. We set our desire on it. And therefore it becomes to us an idol. And we seek satisfaction from it rather than from God. And so he says we are to put to death that lust within us that says, I want more. Kill it. And not only that, but anger as well. Anger is a human emotion and can be expressed righteously. But here he's talking about the wrong expression of it. It is here that settled, abiding reaction that seeks revenge. Anger here is that smoldering hatred that can be fanned and brought to flame in our lives. It seeks to punish others who hurt us or who hurt someone we love. Anger is that thing that wants to get even. Some people try to divide it by saying, well, I don't get angry, I just get even. But you see, that's what anger is. It means I want mine in return. And not only are we to put to death anger, but wrath as well. Wrath is similar to anger, but it means the outburst of inward indignation. It's like hot lava that is contained and held within, and then suddenly, bam, like a volcano, it explodes against others. And once the explosion takes place, it's over. That's the word here for wrath. It's a fit of rage. Now, God has a holy kind of wrath, but he's talking here about unholy, sinful wrath that blazes quickly and then, after the violence, subsides. We're to put it to death. That's a part of something else. Another life, before we knew Christ, he says, kill it. Take it off like dirty clothing. And with it, malice. Malice is that vicious nature that's intent on doing harm to others. Kill it, he says. And with it, slander. The word is blasphemia. 
where we get our English word blasphemy, which can be against God or other people. To blaspheme or to slander means to belittle so as to cause another to fall into disrepute. It means to gossip so as to ruin another's reputation. He says that does not belong in a Christian lifestyle. He says that is what God's wrath is coming on. And not only that, but abusive speech. The word literally means shameful words. It is an uncontrolled tongue that uses base language. It's crude language. We live in a world that communicates with this kind of language. You junior hires and high schoolers hear it on your campus all the time, just crude, base language. Not cursing. Not using God's name in vain, but just crude words. That's what he's talking about. And he says that's not to be a part of our lives. Not filthy language, not dirty talk. Put it to death. And also lying. He says stop lying. Whether by life or by lip, stop lying to others. Wow. The next paragraph is going to be in more positive words, but here... He goes down this list of 11 sins, and he says, these things have to go. So when you talk about what a heavenly life in street clothes looks like, here you see what the clothes ought not to be worn. These are the kind of clothes that need to be taken off and piled up in the corner and burned. Done with. By the way, this list is not all-inclusive. If you go to Ephesians 4 or Galatians 5, you'll find similar words, but the words kind of ebb and flow. There are other things that Paul could list here. This is suggestive. Now, why are these things to be removed from a Christian's lifestyle? I want to suggest two reasons. First, because of what you did. Secondly, because of what Christ did. What did you do? Well, he tells us in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. The apostle says that when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether it was as a little child in childlike innocence or was an adult who's been in the gutter and all the rest, when you trusted Jesus Christ, something happened, whether you realized it or not. The old person that you were up to that point, you stripped off completely, just like a, a dirty set of clothes. Who you were you just took off and you threw them down. You stripped yourself completely. And then you picked up this new garment, this brand new set of wonderful, clean clothing, and you put it on, and that's the new you. 
Now, this isn't something that you did apart from God. God, in his grace, led you to that point of recognizing your need of trusting Christ. He's the one who showed you what the clothing was like you had on. He's the one who provided the new clothing. But it was an act of your will. God's grace enabling you, but it was an act of your will. He says, you did this. Now he says, you have taken off all of that that you were before. This is how you once lived, but now it's different. You've taken that off, so stop living that way. That doesn't reflect who you are now. So put it to death. Get it off of you. Throw it away. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become new. And so he says, if you continue to live like this, it's a contradiction to what you did when you trusted Christ. But he says there's a second reason why these things ought to be removed from your lifestyle. There's a second reason why you ought to put to death and put aside these impulses and actions. It's because of what Christ did. Notice, verse 10. You put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In the first place, Christ created you the new self. That's what he did. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new man... Which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He says, Jesus Christ created you, the new you. And not only that, he's constantly renewing you now in a deeper, more intimate knowledge so that you're being changed into his image because of what he did, put aside all of these practices. But not only did he create you as the new self, the second thing that Christ did is that he indwells you as the new self. Notice verse 11 says, This new thing involves no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. Do we have any Scythians here this morning? No takers. Do you know what a Scythian is? That is a word that was created back in those days for wild people. Now, barbarians were simply those who had not been to school. They had not had training. But Scythians were wild people. Wild people. Some of you have been to Bet Shan in Israel, which is uh, one of the Decapolis cities that's being dug out of the, the earth and they're restoring it. It's a marvelous place to visit, but Bet Shan is the Hebrew name for that place. 
It was called in the Roman days by a Roman name, Synthopolis. And that word Synthopolis comes from the same word. What it was called was the city of the wild things. <laughs> Synthopolis. Kind of reminded me of my neighborhood last night, tell you the truth. My mailbox was on the ground this morning. We had a Cynthian in our neighborhood last night. You know what he's telling us here? Even wild people can get saved. There are some people in your life right now, you look at, I mean, they're out there and they're friends probably, or maybe you're living with them, I don't know, but somewhere there may be a Cynthian in your life and you say, boy, I tell you, God could never do anything with that person. Don't you believe it for a minute. Put that one on the top of your Operation Andrew list and pray for him. Pray for her. And you probably know some barbarians and maybe some Greeks and Jews and so on. But the point here is that in Jesus Christ, all kinds of people can get saved. It doesn't matter about their ethnicity. If you're Irish, it really helps because God loves the Irish a little more. <laughs> At least on St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't matter about ethnicity. It doesn't matter about social standing. Your economic capability, what you have or don't have, none of that matters. There's no distinction. But he goes on to say something that's very wonderful. He says, but Christ is all and in all. Some of you know Pastor Mark Jefferson, a dear black brother who pastors a church in the north side of Minneapolis. Uh, Challenging brother, wonderful brother. Every summer, Mark goes with some of the people in his church and some others to Sturgis, South Dakota. Isn't that the right place? Where the Scythians meet. <laughs> Where hundreds of thousands of bikers come together. And they set up a tent and they offer coffee and they have cots there, and these Scythians stumble into the tent every now and then. And they're able to sit them down, to give them a cup of coffee, to try to sober them up. They offer them a place to sleep, and they witness to them. And some of them every year come to faith in Christ. Most of, I, wouldn't, I, I don't think I could do that. I would be scared to death. But uh, Mark is part of what's called the Sons of Thunder, you think about that in a moment. A biker's group from Minnesota of Christians. And this is their ministry, one of them. You know what? When those Scythians out there, those bikers get saved, Christ is in them. He may be buried pretty deep, <laughs> but he's there. Christ is in every one of the new people he makes. And here's Paul's point. I mean, it's just a little prepositional phrase here, but here's his point. Why do I need to put these kinds of behaviors away and put them to death? Because those things describe how I treat other people. When I treat another Christian by lying to them or committing immorality with them or I am slandering them, I am gossiping about them, 
I am sinning against Christ. Because Christ is in them. That's why he says, put to death these things. Kill them. When those impulses come and you want to do this or that, say, no! When you have a drive or a desire within you or you want to say something so bad or there is this attitude that's just rotten to the core, he says, get that thing off of you. Throw it in the dirty clothes and burn them. Get rid of it. Because if you indulge it, you're lying about who you are. When you trusted Christ, you became a new man. And Christ created you who you are. And Christ lives in you and he lives in that person. So be done with those things. When we go home, we often go up Lexington Avenue and just as you get to 694, there's a Perkins restaurant. There's one of those beautiful flags out there that fly at Perkins restaurants. Sometimes they're coming down to church, the flag will be limp, or it'll be kind of floating in the breeze. But sometimes we're heading back home, it's just the opposite. Something's happened in the meantime, the two or three hours we're here, and that flag will be straight out, and usually it's indicating that the wind is blowing from the northwest. And I suspect it'll be that way later today if the weather report's right. You can tell which way the wind is blowing by looking at the flag. And my friend, you can tell whether your mind is focused on things above or on things on the earth by the way the wind is blowing in your life. What's the flag in your life saying? If your life attitudes, if the decisions that you're making or your actions are not reflecting a heavenly mindset, there's no better time than today and right now to change course. You say, how do you do that? Alistair Begg, in his fine book entitled Made for His Pleasure, says, not by a slavish observance of external rules. We don't do it that way, he says. That's so because we need an internal, an internal mechanism if we're to put off the old and put on the new. And that will come about only if we have been raised with Christ to newness of life. It is our union with Christ that makes the new life possible. The power we need is the power that comes from the Lord who works in our lives to enable us to do his good pleasure. Then we are responsible to work out what God by his spirit is working in. He's saying God hasn't left us alone to put to death these things. No, he's given us the Holy Spirit. We've been united with Jesus Christ. We have life from Christ. Now he says, you're responsible to follow up. You are responsible, he says, to carry through and put to death and to put aside these things for these reasons. I invite you to bow together with me as we close the service. And I just ask the question, 
Which way does the Holy Spirit say the wind is blowing today? What does the flag in your life, your behavior, your attitudes indicate? Is the wind blowing from self-centeredness? Selfish desire, lust? Are you treating others in a way that is according to your past lifestyle? Then today's the day to stop and see the wind change directions and by the Spirit to say no to sin and yes to Christ's Lordship. Will you do that? Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you will enable us to do what we must do today. And I pray that we will not only know the truth, but show the truth in our lives. Before I finish praying, I wonder if there's someone here who would say, Pastor, the Holy Spirit has touched my heart about this this morning, and I know the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. When I see the flag, it's telling me that I'm not living for what I ought to be living, that I need to set my mind on things above and not on things on the earth. Would you pray for me, Pastor? If you just lift your hand and then put it down, I'll be glad to do that. God bless you. I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you. just want to know. And God knows. Yes, God bless you. Thank you for being honest, transparent. Anyone else? Oh, Father, I thank you for these who have lifted their hand and whom the Holy Spirit is doing a very special work at this moment. And I pray that you will bring that to full consummation. May they enter into the kinds of behavior, the kind of a lifestyle that declares who they are in Jesus Christ. That's consistent with what they've professed to believe. And would all of you stand with me, please, and let's, let's sing together. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior.